Hey, welcome to this episode of Linguistics with Laura. Hopefully, you've been able to tell some people off for being grammar snobs since my last episode, but if not, I'm sure you'll have the opportunity one of these days. We're going to take a break from being sassy today, though, and talk about one of, if not my favorite topic in linguistics, that is semantics. You've probably heard someone say the phrase, it's just semantics, before, but what does this term actually mean specifically within the realm of linguistics? Well, to start out, semantics refers to what is arguably the most important and fundamental purpose of language, meaning. The whole reason we use language in the first place is to communicate, and to communicate we need things to mean something. In the case of language, sounds make up words, which make up sentences that allow us to communicate coherent thoughts, statements, questions, and feelings. Linguists often divide the broader field of semantics into subfields, lexical semantics and phrasal semantics. Lexical semantics refers to the meaning of words and the meaning of relationships among words. Phrasal semantics, on the other hand, refers to the meaning of syntactic units like phrases, makes sense, and sentences. There's also a third subfield of semantics called pragmatics, or the study of how context affects meaning and perception of language. So if you ask your roommate, hey, would you like an omelet? It's assumed that by asking this question in this way, you'll make your roommate an omelet if they respond affirmatively. What you're really saying with this question, though, in a literal sense, is if the person would hypothetically desire an omelet. You're not by any means agreeing literally to making the roommate an omelet. Where pragmatics comes into play here is that syntactic makeup and tonal phrasing of the question leads the roommate to believe that you are offering them an omelet, and that is a mutual understanding between the two of you, hopefully. Even though it wasn't explicitly stated through words that convey the mutually understood meaning. An interesting facet within the realm of semantics is the concept of truth and how truth is conveyed or not conveyed through language. When talking about truth and how it relates to semantics, there are several important vocabulary words that we should go over first. The first of these is something called a tautology. This is a sentence that is always true regardless of the circumstances. So what would an example of this be? Well, take the sentence, circles are round. This sentence is always going to be true because a circle that isn't round isn't a circle. So essentially, a tautology in a way defines the subject of the sentence and links a word with its fundamental description. The same thing goes for a sentence like the bachelor is unmarried. Try to think of more of these. The key is to think of how you can define a word and then how you could make a statement out of it, if that makes sense. You can have some fun playing around with these and try to determine whether a sentence can really always be true or if there is some obscure way in which it could be false. On the flip side of a tautology is something called a contradiction, and I bet you can guess what this would be. So this is a sentence that is never true. It is always false and cannot possibly be accurate. If we take the bachelor example, a contradiction would be a sentence like, the bachelor is married. This is not true. If a bachelor is married, they're not a bachelor. The homeowner is homeless is another good example. You get the idea. The next important vocabulary word to the field of semantics is something called entailment. And this one is honestly a little bit weird to think about. It's definitely a little bit abstract in my opinion. It might even sound incredibly obvious. In fact, so obvious that it's almost confusing. Let's take the sentence, Kara runs quickly. 
When we hear this sentence, we find out that Kara runs in a fast manner, but this piece of information also gives us the more basic piece of information that Kara runs, period. If we think about sentences as messages carrying data that needs to be transferred, we essentially get two messages here with this sentence. First, we get the message that Kara runs. Running is an action that Kara engages in. We also get the message that not only does Kara run, but she runs fast. Thus, we learn two new things about Kara, assuming that we didn't already know these pieces of information. Take the sentence, we all watched a movie together. From this sentence, we learn that there is more than one person spending time together through the usage of the word we. We also learn that there is some movie that exists. And we also learn that the we in this sentence watched the movie together. You could argue that you also gain the information that these people have eyes and can see, since we use the term watched. You see how things get a little bit complicated? It's fun to think of ways that you can extract more meaning out of seemingly simple sentences. I mean, I think it's fun, but maybe you don't. Anyway, moving on. As I've explained in this episode as well as previous episodes, the advanced nature of human language allows us to talk about things that aren't present and right in front of us, and in fact, we can even talk about things that don't exist at all. In semantics, we look at two different terms, reference and sense. The word reference refers to a situation where the meaning of a word or expression has a real-world referent. So if you say the word poster, a real-world object exists that is the physical manifestation of the word poster. In fact, I have several of them in my apartment right now. However, if you were to start talking about unicorns, there would obviously be no real-world referent that exists as the physical manifestation of the word unicorn. This is what linguists call sense, where there is no real-world referent that exists in parallel with a word. Weirdly enough, grammar or grammaticality exists pretty independently of semantics and meaning. A sentence can have perfectly valid grammatical structure but make zero sense. This is also true for statements that are false, also known as lies. So if you utter a sentence that is completely false, just not true at all, as we see happen so often with the current president of the United States, that does not mean that the sentence is grammatically invalid. Well, the sentences that President Trump says usually are quite invalid in more ways than one, but I'm not going to get into that right now. So because we can say grammatical sentences that make no sense, we see something called an anomaly. The most famous example linguists use to describe this phenomenon is a sentence first stated by linguist Noam Chomsky. That sentence is, colorless green ideas sleep furiously. I know, what? There's no way that this sentence could possibly be true. First of all, how could an idea be green? How could a green idea be colorless? And how does an idea sleep? And further, sleep is a verb that exists in a way that does not imply intention, just like verbs forget or sleep. This concept where we have verbs that occur without intention is referred to as volition. Because you're not conscious when you're sleeping, you can't sleep furiously. The adverb furiously implies consciousness. You're purposely performing an action in an intense or ferocious way. You can't sleep aggressively or ferociously. So, for all these reasons, the sentence, colorless green ideas sleep furiously, makes absolutely zero sense. But it's still got perfect grammatical structure according to traditional English standards for a sentence. There's a subject, ideas, 
a couple words to describe said subject. There's also a verb, sleep, and then an adverb that modifies the verb sleep. However, there's just an utter incompatibility among the words in this sentence, and that's what makes it anomalous. If you can, try to think of more anomalous sentences. It might be a little harder than you think, but I'll give you a hint. Think about certain metaphors or idioms, like the phrase, it's raining cats and dogs outside, or my eyes were bigger than my stomach. I really, really hope that neither of these sentences are actually true, because if they were, we'd have some weird problems on our hands. If cats and dogs were literally falling out of the sky, that would be pretty dangerous for both the animals and the rest of the world. If my eyes were literally bigger than my stomach, I'd probably either have a tiny stomach or creepily huge eyes. But we understand the true pragmatic meaning behind these phrases. They don't have any literal validity, they just represent the fact that it's raining really hard outside and I put too much food on my plate and can't finish it all, respectively. These sentences, you could say, are anomalous because they don't make real-world sense. But we understand what they actually mean pragmatically through the usage of idioms and metaphors, which we can't say is true for our colorless green ideas. Now, you might have heard the term homophone or heteronym before, but do you know exactly what homophone or heteronym is? Is it two words that are spelled the same but sound different? Or is it two words that sound the same but are spelled differently? And do these words have the same meanings, or do they mean something completely different? Well, before we can dive into these questions, we have to take a look at the difference between the prefixes hetero and homo or homo, which I'm sure you're quite familiar with, and if you're not, well, it's 2020. So as far as you probably know, the prefix hetero means different, and the prefix homo or homo means the same. When talking about homophones, heteronyms, and the like, we have to look at the intersections between word spelling, word pronunciation, and finally, word meaning. To do this, we also need to learn the suffixes that refer to spelling, meaning, and sound. The suffix graph refers to the spelling of a word, which makes sense given the fact that another word for spelling is orthography. The suffix graph usually refers to visual stimuli. So then, the suffix for sound is phone, which makes sense if you think about how a telephone or cell phone works. It's all about sound. Finally, the suffix nim refers to word structure or form. Let's look at two words. Tear, spelled T-E-A-R, and tear, also spelled T-E-A-R. The words are spelled the same, but are pronounced differently. They also have different meanings. One is a noun, meaning a drip of water that runs from a person's face after they've been crying. The other can be a noun or a verb referring to, let's say, a piece of paper that gets torn to shreds. So to summarize, these words have the same spelling, different pronunciations, and different meanings. This means that the words tear and tear are homographs, but they are also heterophones. Let's look at another example. Weather and weather. One spelled W-E-A-T-H-E-R, and the other spelled W-H-E-T-H-E-R. Both are pronounced the same way, but are spelled differently and have very different meanings. One, of course, refers to the current outdoor climate, and the other is a grammatical conjunction. So because these words sound the same but are spelled differently and have different meanings, they are homophones, but also heterographs. In essence, they are the opposite of words like tear and tear, which are heterophones, but homographs. So lastly, we have the suffix nim. 
Homonyms are words that have the same spelling and same pronunciation, but different meanings. Think of some examples. The ones that stick out in my mind are bark and bark, as in tree bark, but also the bark of a dog. Another good one is bat, as in baseball bat, or the creepy animal, a bat. You get the idea. We also have words that can be classified as something called polysemous. This can occur when homonyms are, in fact, not true homonyms, but they have some sort of tie to one another, no matter how obscure it may be. To clarify, a true homonym exists between two words that are pronounced the same and spelled the same, but have absolutely nothing to do with one another. Their physical similarities are purely a coincidence, you could say. But some words, on the other hand, are pronounced the same way and spelled the same, and there's a reason why. Take the word diamond. This word could refer to the hard, luxurious mineral used to create expensive jewelry, or it could refer to the structure within a baseball field. Two very different things, right? Well, yes, but also no. A diamond is known for having its distinct shape, with four sides each pointing out on their ends. This shape is the exact same shape that the baseball field diamond is in, thus there's a clear connection between a mineral diamond and a baseball field diamond. Polysemy can also refer to words like get, where you can use the verb in one context to mean obtain a physical object, or to get something, as in understand a concept. Hopefully you get what I mean. See what I did there? While the two uses of these words are different in what they convey, their meanings are related. They both signify some type of obtaining something in some way, leaving a situation having gained something. Another example, the word arm. An arm can refer to the body part you use on a day-to-day -day basis, or the word can refer to a lethal weapon. While thinking of these two types of arms, it kind of seems like they're completely unrelated, but they're not. An arm, as in a body part, can be used to injure someone or protect oneself from harm, and the same is true for a gun, thus the two word meanings are related. Now, I want to discuss one of my favorite linguistic phenomena that is, in a way, kind of the opposite of polysemy. These are what I refer to as Janus words, named after the Greek god of duality. Many people also refer to them as autoantonyms. These are words or terms that are spelled and pronounced the same way, but have opposite meanings. It's weird, but also pretty cool. Take the phrase fight with. What do you think of when you hear this? Do you think of two people fighting against each other? Or do you think of someone standing up for someone else and what they believe in, thus fighting with them? See how this term, even though it's the same term, means the opposite of itself? Let me give you a couple more examples. The word off. When you first hear this word, you probably think of a light switch or something along those lines, and you're probably thinking of that light switch as being turned off, as in there is not electricity running through the current at that moment. But think about an alarm clock. If an alarm clock goes off, does it turn off and thus cease to make its incredibly loud and painful noises, or does it ignite and start making its loud and painful noises? Here's another one. If you dust something, are you removing said thing of the dust that had previously been on it, or are you adding a layer of dust to the object? Last one, screen. If you screen something, it can mean that you're publicly sharing it with other people, showing it off. But if you screen something, it can also mean that you're concealing something from view. There's a screen in the way. I just think those are cool as heck. 
Now, there are several examples of what I would consider to be dichotomies in the subfield of semantics. The first one that we are going to talk about is one of my favorites. I don't know why it's a favorite of mine exactly, but I just find it fascinating. Have you ever noticed how there are some words in English that really don't seem to carry much meaning in a sentence? They're just kind of there to hold the sentence together like glue? Think about the directions you see in the manual of a product you just bought. Place item in bowl of hot water. Place in microwave for two minutes. Do you see how the sentence omitted words like the and a? It didn't replace words like item, bowl, hot, or microwave, because those words were essential in understanding the meaning of the directions. Words like the and a, however, weren't as essential. This is the difference between content words and function words in English. Content words refer to nouns, adjectives, verbs, and adverbs, words that carry the bulk of the meaning in a sentence. Content words denote objects, actions, and attributes. Function words, on the other hand, exist mainly to specify grammatical relations. They have little to no semantic content. Pronouns, articles, prepositions, and conjunctions are prime examples of function words. You can also tell if a word is a function word by trying to define the word. Try to define a word like the, a, to, or at. It's almost impossible to define those, right? If you have trouble defining a word, it's probably a function word. There's also another interesting difference between content and function words. Content words are sometimes referred to as open class words because they are always accepting new members to their crew. Before computers existed, there was obviously no word for computer, but once the first computer was made, the word computer came about, and now it's accepted as a common noun that just about everyone is familiar with and understands. It's pretty hard, on the other hand, to come up with a new function word. That's probably why we only have a few of them while we have thousands upon thousands of content words. For this reason, function words are referred to as closed class words. They very, very rarely accept new members. A second dichotomy within the subfield of semantics is the difference between count nouns and mass nouns, another one of my favorites. This difference was something I picked up on many years ago, before I ever studied linguistics, and I was so thrilled to learn that there was actually a name for this idea when I took a linguistics class. Take a noun like water, and then take a noun like book. It makes sense to say, there's a lot of water over there, but not very much sense to say, there's a lot of book over there. That's because water is a mass noun. It refers to a mass of matter. It can't be counted. A book, on the other hand, is a count noun, because it can be counted. Its existence begins and ends from the top of the book to the bottom, and that amount of matter in the universe constitutes that one singular book. Nouns such as water, sadness, energy, or education you can't count. They exist more broadly, and that makes them mass nouns. Count nouns can also be pluralized, while mass nouns cannot. It would sound pretty weird to say something like sadnesses, wouldn't it? The third form of dichotomy that exists in semantics is the difference between two types of verbs, stative verbs versus eventive verbs. If you say, I like the taste of coffee, and by the way, I really do, then you're still using a verb in the sentence because, as we learned from syntax, you need a verb to complete a sentence. However, the verb like isn't really describing an event or action, it's more just describing a state of being. Thus, the verb like is considered a stative verb. Other examples of stative verbs include the most commonly used verb, to be, and also have, seem, prefer, understand, doubt, hate, and know, and there are several more. 
These all describe a state of being, a perception or a feeling. On the flip side, eventive verbs describe an event, something that happens, it's fleeting, it starts and it ends. So if I smile, the smile happens and then it is no longer happening. If I run, that constitutes an event. I ran, but then I stopped running. You get the idea. If we continue talking a little bit more about opposites in linguistics, which I'm now realizing appears to be a bit of a theme when it comes to semantics, we see three different types of words of oppositional pairs. The first is something called the gradable pair. Take the antonyms short and tall. These words are relative. They depend on what it is they're being compared to. So since I'm 5'2 and most of my friends are pushing six foot, I'm considered short and it's taken some time, but I'm proud of it. However, if you compare me to the little kids who are constantly yelling outside my apartment, I'd be the tall one and they would be short. Height exists on a spectrum. Same with the differences between big and small, hot and cold, fast and slow, or happy and sad. Of course, you can keep thinking of more, especially since gradable pairs are probably the most commonly used type of antonym pair. But let's move on to the next type, the complementary pair. Rather than having two antonyms that exist on a spectrum, the complementary pair represents a relationship that is much more rigid, more black and white, which, by the way, is one of the most common examples of a complementary pair. You can't be both, you're either one or the other. The presence of one word implies the absence of the other. Examples include alive or dead, awake or asleep, present or absent, internal or external, conquer or fail. You could argue that there are a few exceptions to this rule, like when you get up to pee in the middle of the night and can barely remember what's going on. That's sort of an in-between being awake or asleep. Or if you've ever seen the classic movie The Princess Bride, Miracle Max famously says that a person can either be mostly dead or all dead, and if they're all dead, there's only one thing you can do, go through their pockets and look for loose change. But by and large, it's pretty difficult to find a middle ground between being awake or asleep, alive or dead, present or absent, etc. The last type of oppositional pair that exists is what's called relational opposites. When you have two words that symbolize a sort of relationship to one another, you have a relational opposite pair. Take the terms buy and sell. You can't have one without the other. If there's no person selling an object, there can't be anyone who buys it. If there's a teacher but no student, then what can possibly be taught or learned? Similarly, there can't be a parent without a child, otherwise the parent wouldn't be a parent. It sort of relates back to our discussion of contradictions and tautologies. The relational opposites present a mutual relationship among two parties of the situation. They depend on each other to exist as they are. So much of semantics comes down to real-world context, as we see with our discussion of metaphors and pragmatics. In fact, many of the words we use in really all of our sentences are dependent on context, the surroundings, and just the overall current situation. For example, in the sentence I just said, I used a couple words that probably would have been confusing to someone reading or listening to it without context. If someone were to read or listen to the sentence, he is going to get there later, with no contextual information, there would be a lot of missing info that would probably confuse the person. Who is he, where is there, and what time is soon? Take this sentence. Josh Hutcherson is going to get to Los Angeles at 5 o'clock on Sunday, October 18th at 9 p.m. This sentence could be referring to the same fact as the first sentence, but the difference is the first sentence relies heavily on context while the second doesn't.
You don't need any contextual information to understand exactly what statement is being conveyed in the second sentence. The same can't be said for the first. This is because in language, we make heavy use of something called dyxis. Dyctic words refer to words that receive their meaning via context and orientation of the speaker. Dyctic words are typically pronouns like he, she, they, we, it, or demonstrative words like this, that, these, those, and prepositions like behind, among, before, etc. It's actually sometimes hard to create a sentence that doesn't use any dyctic words. Although, I guess the sentence I just said didn't really have any. But trust me, if you try to speak in sentences without using any dyctic words, you're going to sound ridiculously specific and redundant. I don't recommend trying this in many situations, although if you're struggling to reach the word count in an essay, it might come in handy. I think the reason I find semantics so interesting is because it can be fun to analyze words and sentences, determining if a verb is stative or eventive, or if a noun is a mass noun or count noun, if a pair of antonyms is a gradable pair, or if something constitutes an anomaly. Anytime I'm bored in one of my Zoom classes, which honestly has been happening a lot recently, I can always fall back on semantic puzzles for my brain to work on. I could do this forever, but at some point I need to stop myself. I think we've covered most of the important aspects of semantics, and hopefully I've turned you on to this special subfield of linguistics. Thanks for tuning in today. Ah, another dyctic word. And make sure to tune in next time. I'll be sitting down with one of my best friends who is also my roommate, and we'll be talking about different accents, phonetics, phonology, and all things related to speech sounds. It should be a fun time. For now, though, keep thinking about semantics, and I will see you next time.